Well, good morning. It's good to see everyone here. Um, some of you may know uh, Kevin's been having some severe heart issues, and so uh, this week he had a very unfortunate week, so he reached out to me asking if I could step in last minute, so that's why I'm here this morning preaching, if you've been wondering. Um, I want to start with prayer, and as always, I, I like to ask that you'd be praying uh, for, for me, that the Holy Spirit would work through me, but also uh, for yourselves as well, that the Holy Spirit would, would open up your heart to receive the, the good news of Jesus. Um, and that's what we hope to accomplish this morning, is to see the good news of Jesus. Um, so let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to open up your word together, to unpack um, just the revelation that you have for us. Uh, but we also recognize that sometimes there are passages that are difficult. And I pray that you would give us wisdom and understanding that leads to Jesus, that we wouldn't um, uh, just, just stop at the words, but that we would dig deep into it, its meaning and, and, and that you would just expose to us the good news. Would you reveal to us who Jesus is, his heart for us, the great love that you have for us this morning. And so I pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would open these things up to us. And I pray that uh, ultimately Jesus would be made known and made great this morning. So I ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. We've been in the book of Acts. Um, if you've been following along with us, and uh, just a recap of where we've been. So, we were at the beginning of Acts chapter 12 last week, and we're introduced to King Herod. Uh, King Herod is violently persecuting Christians. It says that he killed James, and this pleased the Jewish people, and he uh, wanted to receive the affirmation of the Jewish people again, so he thought, well, I'm going to do the same thing to Peter, right? So he puts Peter in prison with hopes to execute Peter, but before that could happen, an angel of the Lord miraculously comes and delivers Peter from his imprisonment. And so we got to read that last week. Um, so we're at the last part of chapter 12 this morning, and this follows... Uh, what we were reading last week in the narrative. So if you have a Bible, I'd ask you to turn there to Acts chapter 12. Otherwise, we do have the words on the screen as well for you to follow along. Starting in verse 20. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a god and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms 
and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. I don't know about you, but passages like this are are difficult for me. Um, When Kevin asked me to preach, I turned to the passage and I thought, oh boy. (laughs) Um, But my hope is that we can see good news in this. Um, we'll, We'll get there. But first we need to understand King Herod. King Herod is a man of conflict. We saw this last week. Uh, He has conflict with the Christians. He's violently persecuting them by killing them. Now he's in conflict with people of Tyre and Sidon. It says that he's angry with them. He's having a quarrel with these people. We don't know what the quarrel is, but he clearly has some sort of conflict with them. Um, So it says, And they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's Chamberlain, so this would have been the king's personal attendant. And, and essentially what they're doing is they're, they're, they're getting this guy, Blastus, to be on their you know, side, being the mediator between them and the king, because they're trying to make peace with, with them and the king. Um, and it says because their country depended on the king's country for food. So this was a, a serious issue for them, right? They, they need food. And so they're going to Blastus to be their mediator, and, and they want to make peace with the king. So it says, on an appointed day, so there's an appointed day where Herod is going to come out and, and hear the, the, the plea of these people. And it says, he put on his royal robes, and he took his seat on the throne, and he delivered an oration to them, or a public address. Now, Luke is using intentional language here. Of, of, of this king-like status of Herod. And what's interesting is we, we actually have a, a parallel account of this story by a historian uh, of the name Josephus, who, who um, lived around this time. And he, he writes a, a very similar account of King Herod's death. Um, there's a little bit of differences in, in, in the details, and one of those details that, that Josephus writes about this is that Herod's royal robes were like a reflective silver. And he would do this so that when he would stand in the light, it would be reflecting, you know, in in the eyes of these people so that he would appear as some sort of deity. So when it says here that he's donning these royal robes, it's not simply that he's just putting on his kingly attire. It's that he is standing before the people, attempting to be deity, right? Um... And we can see even more of this because he takes a seat upon the throne. The, the, the Greek word here is for judgment seat. You know, he is standing as the authority and the judge over these people. He delivers this public address, and then this is what they shout to him. He's the voice of a God and, and not of a man. Right? They're crying out to him that this guy is, is a God. He is a deity. So because of this, It says that an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. See, again, what we're seeing about Herod is that he is someone 
who is wanting God's own glory for himself. He wants to receive that glory for himself. He's standing there in this royal attire to appear as deity before the people. And we even see this in how he's trying to be the authority of human life by killing innocent Christians. But what God is showing is that he is the true authority over human life. God is the true deity. It says that an angel of the Lord struck him down. Now, there's, there's a clue in the text here that I don't think this is a, you know, physical, we see a physical angel coming down with like a flaming sword, you know, chopping King Herod, um, because it says that he was eaten by worms. Uh, I actually think this is a little bit more grotesque than, than that picture of like a flaming sword. What, what it's, because uh, this is most likely actually some sort of physical ailment that he was given, and probably literal to what the text is saying. Um, so what we're seeing here is Luke is indicating that this angel of the Lord is, is God's hand over this physical ailment of King Herod that inevitably caused his death because it says he breathed his last. This is, this is a really grotesque picture of the result of human sin and, and pride and, and, and receiving we, we want God's glory for ourselves. So, if you're like me, this is, a, this is a troubling picture. And I think there's two reasons why this troubles us. Um, so I came up with this phrase this week, and I'm excited about it because it rhymes, and I, it's fun. Um, but I think one of the reasons is uh, the Bible is realistic, not idealistic. Isn't that cool? It rhymes. I think it's cool. Uh, the, the Bible is realistic, not idealistic. And, and essentially, w- what I mean by that is we want the ideal outcome for King Herod. You know, we, I mean, we saw, we saw Paul. He's, he's a persecutor of Christians, and what happens to him? He, he gets radically converted, and he works with the church, and it's awesome. And, and that's, what, that's what we would hope for King Herod in this passage. At least we should, right? I mean, ideally, and we should have that idealistic Expectation. Even when we're praying for people in our own lives, we should have that ideal of, of, of their repentance and coming to Jesus. But we also know that that's not always the response that people have to the good news of Jesus. And so the Bible is more realistic than that. We're seeing the response of someone who rejects that, who wants the glory of God for himself. And we're seeing the grotesque picture, the result of what happens because of sin. So that's one reason. But the second reason is because we read a passage like this and we think that this is God's disposition towards us. Maybe some of you don't struggle with this, but but maybe you do. I'm assuming there's some of us here who have this idea that God is this angry, vindictive being who at any moment, he's just ready to to cast you out. If you make one false step like King Herod, you know, you're going to experience this judgment. And so we read this, and and we get our stomach tied in knots because we think, maybe this is the way that God feels about me too. So before we continue on with this text, we need to just spend a a brief moment unpacking uh, the judgment of God. And to do that, we need to understand who is God 
like? What, what is he like? What is his character? There's a famous passage in the Old Testament uh, from Exodus where, where God reveals his glory to Moses. And when he does so, he, he proclaims his name and who he is. And this is what he says about himself. He says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. He is just abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And he keeps steadfast love for thousands. And he is a God who wants to forgive people, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So for those who are, who are seeing the goodness of God and come to him in repentance, he's just waiting for them because he wants to forgive. He is just abounding in this, right? But there's one that um, I didn't mention, and it's slow to anger. And it's somewhat of a, of a unique attribute. Because in a sense, it's, it's describing God in a way that's not an attribute about him. Anger is, is not uh, natural to God. And, and there's, a, there's a book um, by a pastor and an author of the name Dane Ortland. Maybe some of you are familiar with his work. He wrote an incredible book called Gentle and Lowly. And he points out in this book how... Throughout the Old Testament, God has to be provoked to anger. He has to be provoked to anger. He's never provoked to love. He's never provoked to mercy. That's natural within him. That is just oozing out of him at any moment. But God has to be provoked to anger because anger is not something that's natural to him. Anger is a response it is a response to seeing human sin and, and willingness or willingly rejecting him. But what, what's slow to anger is it is an attribute, but it's not simply just patience. I mean, that's a part of it, but it doesn't get to the whole root of it. Essentially what it's saying is, um, it's kind of like the old King James translation, long-suffering. God patiently endures and suffers long people who are, who are willingly rejecting him and, and destroying themselves because of sin. And so this is who God is. He is one who is, who is, he is merciful, gracious, abounding in steadfast love, faithfulness, and he's keeping steadfast love for a thousand. He wants to forgive. And in that, he does have anger, but he's very slow. He's patient to it. And so we have to keep that in mind. When we read about Herod, this isn't God just his fingers on, on the trigger waiting to, to smite Herod at any moment. No, he, he patiently and, and longingly has suffered the, the rebellion and corruption of someone as wicked as Herod. Another text that's important is Ezekiel uh, 18.23, where God explicitly says, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked? declares the Lord God. And not rather that he should turn from his way and live. God does not delight in the death of wicked people. He's very clear about that. What he wants is for those people to repent, to turn from their way and to come to him, to receive life. We can actually see this even in some of the challenging Old Testament judgment passages like in, in the flood narrative 
What's interesting is God is not seen as being angry in the flood narrative. It says that he is grieved to his heart. When God looks at human sin and corruption, his, his immediate response is not just anger, but it's sorrow, it's grief, because he sees the damage that sin does. So he does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked. Now there's one more that we need to look at, and it comes from John 3. So this is Jesus speaking. And this is what Jesus says. For God did not send his son, meaning Jesus, into the world to condemn the world. The reason that that Jesus can say this is because the world's already condemned. We're going to see this later in this text. But uh, the world is already condemned due to human sin. We, we have willingly, through our sin, been condemning ourselves because the, the result of sin is, is death and destruction, right? So the world is already condemned, but so Jesus was not sent to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So again, we're seeing this, this picture of, of God looking at humanity, seeing them in sin, and what does he do? He responds in love by sending Jesus so that we could be saved through Jesus. Whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned. When you believe in Jesus, that condemnation, the, 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 the curse and the reality of our own sin is lifted. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because again, we're seeing how we already live under that condemnation of sin. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is really important. This is what Jesus says. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. Jesus is the light of the world. He is the light that brings salvation. The light has come into the world. And the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. This is so important because he's not saying the judgment is that God is vindictive and angry and he sees the world in sin, so he sends Jesus to pronounce this condemnation of you're all doomed, no, he, what he's saying is he has come to be the light so that people can freely receive that salvation. But what is the judgment? The judgment is that people willingly reject it. They see the light, they see the salvation, and they would rather sit in their own sin. They would rather continue in their darkness because their works are evil. They love the darkness. And this is the same thing for Herod. You can't, you can't imagine... The, the light that he saw, even in the miraculous work of Peter being, being freed from prison, right? He's seeing the church. He's not naive to it. But what does he do? He wants God's own glory for himself. And so he sees the light. He sees the salvation, and he willingly rejects it. So that's what we're seeing here. It's not that God is angry. God is not angry at you. He's not vindictive. What he wants for you is for your salvation to come into the light. And so all of us this morning, we're staring into the light of salvation in Jesus. And maybe some of us are feeling passive this morning. And we should use Herod as a, as a warning to us as to come into the light. This is the, the invitation that Jesus has to every single person to come into the light, to be re removed from that condemnation. But I also want to say, if you're, if you're struggling to feel like God's angry at you, you need to know that you are not under that condemnation. 
because of Jesus, because of the great love that he has for you. So now let's return back to our text in Acts because I want to make a few contrasts here. The, the first one is this um, contrast of words. You've got Herod delivering a public address to the people. But we know that Herod's words, human words, are, are weak. They're powerless compared to the word of God. Because it says in verse 24, but the word of God increased and multiplied. Kings and kingdoms, political powers are going to rise and fall. It happens all the time. King Herod is no longer, the Roman Empire is no longer, but the, but the good news of Jesus remains. The church is still standing, and we're living proof of that right here. Jesus' church remains. And we're seeing how, how God is the one who has the true powerful word. The word of God here uh, is referring to the good news of Jesus. Because it's a powerful word. It's a word that saves. So that's the, the first contrast I want to make. But the second contrast I want to make is that of kings. Because we see the wicked king, Herod. But how can we not think about the good king, Jesus? Because Jesus is totally opposite of, of the kings and the political powers of this world. The kings and the political powers of this world rule with violence. We see this with King Herod. What is he doing? He's persecuting Christians. He's, he's trying to rule and be the authority over life. But that is not the way of King Jesus. What does King Jesus do? He, he offers up his own life for his enemies. He's saying, I'm not going to lead that way. And we can even see by example of, of how Jesus' life reflects in that of the church. When we have Peter in prison, what does the church do? They don't start a political uprising. They don't come in with, with swords and clubs and they're knocking on Herod's door. They turn to prayer. And they patiently, longingly endure the suffering. Because this is the example of Jesus. Jesus is the true king. There's one passage that I want to look at that I think summarizes this uh, very, very well. And it comes from Revelation 19. So uh, we don't have time to get into the whole context of Revelation, and I know we, we went through this as a church a while back. Um, but this is apocalyptic metaphorical imagery to describe a, a uh, true reality of, of who Jesus is. So this is John. He has this radical vision, and he's seeing Jesus getting ready for a final battle of judgment. And this is what he sees. He says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it, this is Jesus, 
is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. So Jesus is the ultimate judge, right? His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems or crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is, a clo- he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Again, we're seeing how Jesus is the Word of God. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. What's interesting is that this is before Jesus goes into battle. So even when we see like this, this image of, of the sword coming from his mouth, that's not a literal image of Jesus holding a sword in his mouth. It's saying that the way that he, he rules is with his words. This is not violent imagery. It's saying he rules by the authority of his word. This is why he's called the word of God. But even more importantly is before the battle begins, he's already covered in blood. He's already covered in blood because of what he did on the cross. This is, this is pointing back to what he did on the cross, right? And this is, this is typical of John throughout Revelation because he'll, just, he'll say, oh, I, I, I heard that there's this lion, the tribe of Judah. But then when he looks to see what that lion is, it's a slain lamb because he's using this imagery to say that the way that Jesus rules and has authority over his enemies is by dying for them, by going to the cross. And so, and so this is the depiction of Jesus' judgment, is that he takes it on himself. He takes on that, that suffering himself, the, the curse, the condemnation of our sin. He willingly goes to the cross. So Jesus is not like the kings and the political powers of this world. Because the reality is they're not for you. The Republican Party, the Liberal Party, whatever you want to put, they're not for you. Jesus is for you. Because Jesus rules different than the world by giving himself up. And this is how we can know that God's not angry at us. God's not vindictive. His finger's not on the trigger. Instead, he says, here's here's the way that I'm going to show you my judgment, by sending myself through my son on the cross. And so this is why we do gospel application. is because it's not about us. It's not about anything that, that we have done or can do to be better Christians. Jesus didn't die for us because we were good people, but because all of us, all of us at some point have wanted to receive God's own glory for ourselves. I mean, this is the lie from the beginning when Satan is tempting humans. He says, you could be like God, right? We want to receive that glory for ourselves, but God looks at all of us in that state, and he says, I'm willing to die for you. 
And so it's not about what we do, it's what Jesus has done for us. And so that's why we end with gospel application. The first point is that Jesus is the true king. The political powers are going to rise and fall. We see that all the time. Someone's in leadership for a time, and then they're not. We see kingdoms that were once powerful are no longer. But Jesus is the true king that has an everlasting kingdom that remains. But then we also see that Jesus is the sacrificial king. He doesn't lead like the people of this world. He leads by being the servant who suffers, who willingly suffers in the place of his people, of his enemies. And this is the gracious gift that is offered to all of us this morning.